0: Grab your seats. Um, I guess I'm I'm gonna do my thing now. I am um, a stranger to most of you, so you m- are probably wondering what I'm doing here. Um, I uh, go to the Vancouver Vineyard just over the river, and uh, Tucker called me and asked me to fill in this week. I guess Glenn's being lazy somewhere. <laughs> so I don't know. He's on a beach somewhere. I don't know. <laughs> Great. I love it. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I love it. No, that's great. Yeah, so I'm, I am, my name is Jace uh, Schwartz. For those of you who don't know me, that's my wife, Michaela. We're here um, from Vancouver just to help out. Um, I am technically the, uh, the associate pastor at the Vancouver Vineyard Church, but who, who isn't? These days. You know, we're all just kinda, we all just kind of play the part there of helping out where we need. Um, and then as of this fall, I just started my uh, dream job of being a college professor of Bible at Warner Pacific University. So if you're ever on the east side at 11 a.m. on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you can come sit in on our class. Um, yeah, so uh, I will pray and then we're just going to dive in. I don't, I'm really bad at just like slow introductions. We'll just jump right in. Uh, Jesus, thanks so much for this uh, incredible little church. I pray that you bless this family with your presence, with your spirit. Lord, I pray that you would um, teach us something new in your word today. And Father, as always, I pray that um, in 30 minutes time, we might look even just a tiny bit more like Jesus than we do right now. In your name I pray. Amen. Great. Um, So I have spent uh, seven, eight plus years um, in school studying this guy named Jesus of Nazareth. Um, And every day I become more convinced that he's the craziest dude I've ever heard of. He's Wild. The more I read about him, the more I am more intrigued by him, and the more I'm offended by him. Um, and so I'm just kind of digging into, I'm just going to kind of present to you guys some stuff that I've been studying and working with. And um, just, yeah, I'm also, I'm more of a teacher. So if you have questions and you want to raise your hand, that's totally fine with me. It's a casual setting. Um, but we're just going to jump right in, and I want to bring your attention to Matthew chapter four, verse 23. Um, w- watch this picture that Matthew g- paints for you, of what Jesus looks like r- right here at the beginning of the gospel. And he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee teaching in their synagogues, their places of um, worship, and he's proclaiming the gospel, or the good news, of the kingdom. So he, ha- he comes and he has this message that he, that he um, always presents, this gospel message. And then, check this out, he heals every disease and every affliction among the people, so his fame spreads throughout all Syria. A uh, Bible teacher of mine always says, that Jesus went viral <laughs> in the ancient world, however you go viral. Which is actually kind of crazy, by the way. It's easy to be famous almost overnight here, but if you don't have Instagram or Twitter or Facebook, to be famous means that people are talking about you in all of the public places of the world. So, um, or at least their little world. So he's, go- he's famous, and they keep bringing him the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains. Um, those oppressed by demons are coming. Those having seizures. The paralytics are coming. So people are helping other people come. And look, he just, he heals all of them. And so these great crowds, they follow him around from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. So this is Matthew just painting a little map for you. Just all around in this little um, world, there's whispering going on, and then people are following up the whispers with, I want to see it for myself, kind of stuff. Um, so right after Jesus starts to preach to these crowds, here's what I'm m- most interested in that I want to talk to you guys about. Well, fir- first, he, he takes them all up onto a hill. And he's going to start teaching them. And this is what will be the most famous sermon of Jesus's, by the way. Matthew 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. Most of you have probably heard it before. It's easily his most famous sermon. He starts with um, what theologians and Bible nerds call the Beatitudes. You guys heard of these before? Look who he says is blessed, by the way. Blessed are the poor. Um, Those who are mourning, you're Blessed. Uh, the meek, those who, are hung, those who uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, and those who are persecuted. So um, welcome to the tiny microcosm of blessing that hundreds and hundreds of pe- people have poured PhDs into to just try to explore. What the heck is going on with these kinds of people, and why does Jesus call them the blessed ones? Fascinating. Dallas Willard wrote a great book on this, by the way, called The Divine Conspiracy. You guys have ever read that? Put that on the library checkout list. It's incredible. Um, okay, so you have this microcosm of blessings. Sorry, I'm just setting the stage for what I really want to get to. You guys are like, great, are we just going to... It's kind of a boring sermon so far, but hold on. He gives you the blessing of all these people. All of these people are locked in he just touched them. Jesus' message is so profound that um, he actually has the ability to, he's, as he's talking to them, he holds their attention not just by what he says, but he's having a physical effect on their bodies. They're being affected by him in the message that they're hearing and in the fact that he looks at them and calls them blessed and he touches them. It's such a, um, such a picture here that when he gets onto the mountain, Um, The picture that's painted is all of these people have been touched by him, and now they're locked in. So he calls them blessed, and then look at verse 13. I want to talk about uh, verse 13 through 16. He looks at them now, and he says this right here. You are the salt of the earth. And we're all like, that's crystal clear what that means. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Well, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. And then he goes on and he says, you're also the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but they put it out on a stand and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and then give glory to your father who's in heaven. Right? We've all heard this before. This isn't news. So I just got thinking, I, um, I got thinking about this, and in, when you're in Bible school, <laughs> this is what, what we do is we find a little verse, and then we just like sit there and chatter about it for hours and hours, and we're like, what does the Greek say, and what does the Hebrew underneath that say, and just for days on end, we talk about this sort of stuff, so this is, what does it mean to be the salt of the earth? This is a huge invitation to just nerd out about salt, but Bi- what does biblical salt look like, and you know? Uh, this is seriously what happens in grad school at the, when you're studying the Bible. So it turns out salt is found throughout your scriptures, and I just want to give you a brief snapshot of how it's used. Um, it's used to season things like you'd expect. Salt is used to preserve things. Um, that's a common usage of salt. It's also used to purify things. It's used in the sacrificial system. as It's called salt of the covenant. It's this idea of purifying something. And so you just get to sit back. This is how the Bible works when you guys are reading it. Um, You get to sit back and you get to take the text and then you get to think about it and you get to pray for a little while and then you get to read it again and then you get to read it again. What does Jesus mean when he says, you are the salt of the earth? And without a doubt, what we know of salt is that salt is great in and of itself, but it's used to affect something else. This is what you, you take salt, and because you're interested in the meat, or you're interested in s- seasoning something, or purifying something, or preserving something, that something is what you're concerned about, so the salt comes in as a secondary tool in order to do what you're interested with this thing, if that makes sense. You're, the food is bland, and you want to eat the food, so you season it. The salt isn't the focus, the food is the focus. You're, you, it's, a, it's a tool. Um... And so it turns out that this is, the, this is the same way that they're talking about, Jesus wants to talk about the word light. So you're the light of the world. What does that mean? Well, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. It shines outward so others see it. Um, and I want to pause for a second, and I just want to show you, um, I know I'm giving you a lot of Bible up front. There's a payoff here if you guys just keep, keep hanging on with me. I promise there's a payoff by putting all these things together. Um, I'm teaching Bible right now, and part of what I do is I teach um, uh, the necessary tools to read the scriptures responsibly, said, so read your scriptures responsibly, <laughs> because what we're really used to is people taking a verse and then just wielding it however they want, ripping it out of context and saying, making it say whatever they want, and um, in order to be responsible Bible readers, our job is to say, okay, I see what the author's saying right here, um, but what is the context of this passage? the immediate context and then how does it fit into the larger structure of the book and how does that book fit into the structure of the Bible and is my interpretation consistent with what's happening so um, I want to just ask real quick you want to as you're reading and you're jumping in in the middle of a sermon or the middle of a teaching you see that Matthew's talking about salt and we're trying to figure out what that means and Matthew's quoting Jesus he's talking about light what does that mean and so the question you could ask is, has, has Matthew talked about light before in the gospel? Has have we talked about the word light? And he has, if you just look right here, if you don't have your Bibles open, you can just look, I'm gonna scroll up about a half a chapter, chapter and a half-ish, I should say, right here in chapter four, just above here, watch, watch this, this is brilliant. He, he quotes a prophecy from the Old Testament. And anytime you read the prophecy, just like, Prophecies are so exciting because it's like in a movie, you know, there's like, mis- like music in the background. It's kind of dark and you hear a prophecy and then the, the story takes um, take shape after that. This is what, when you read prophecy in the, in the New Testament, this is great. It's exciting stuff. Look what he says. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen what? They've seen a great light. Now watch this, watch. For those dwelling in the region in the shadow of death on them a light has dawned. And then look at the next verse verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach. So in this context who what is the light? Who is the light? Without a doubt, right? Do you see this? There's no doubt that Matthew is is asking you to read that interpretation of the Old Testament and see Jesus as the light that it's talking about. How fascinating, then, how fascinating that just half a chapter later, you get to verse 13 of chapter 5, or 14. Who's the light? Do you see this? (laughs) This is great. This is just like, it's very subtle, but it's an invitation for you to really sit back and think about this now. So you have a man... And I just want to r- remind you from the beginning, you have a man in verse tw- 423, who goes throughout the world like salt, a- a- affecting all of these people. He has this effect on them. And then he, he shows up as the light, we just, re- we just read, just right here, he re- shows up as the light, and he comes into these dark places, you know, where those, uh, where those who are mourning, they're in the dark, the meek. These dark places, right? The poor in spirit. Right, why do you think that these are the first people Jesus mentions? They're in the darkness, but he's a great light that's shown up in that darkness. And he shows up as the light and he li- lights it up. He illuminates the scene. He starts to have this effect on them. And then they start to follow him into the light now as seasoned, lit up people. And he looks at them now and he says, You're the salt. You're the light. Right? So so good. Okay, so... um, Yeah, so uh, a picture I want to give you um, is... It's not my own. This is uh, brought to you by uh, C.S. Lewis, who is one of my favorite. Um, He's probably had one of the... He's had one of the greatest effects on me, um, just as an author and um, a teacher. When I get to heaven, he's one of the first people I want to have coffee with. So... Um, so this is a quote by him, and C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis did a lot of um, sipping tea next to Matthew 5:13 through 16, about what does it mean to be the salt and the light of the earth. So I'm just going to read it with you, um, and if you, if you see words that are a little, um, they seem a little archaic or old, that's because he's English, which is also why he sounds way cooler than the rest of us. Um, so just, just watch what he says. Imagine a lot of people who have always lived in the dark. Got it? Try to imagine that. Now you come, and you try to describe to them what light is like. You might tell them that if they come into the light, all of these people that have been in the dark, that same light would fall on them all, and they would all reflect it, and thus become what we call visible. Got it? Is it not quite possible that they would imagine that since they're all receiving the same light and all reacting to it in the same way, i.e. all reflecting it, that they would all look alike? You understand his logic? They're in the darkness. They don't know. Whereas, you and I know that the light will in fact bring out or show up how different they are. Or again, suppose a person who knew nothing about salt you give him a pinch to taste, and he experiences a particular strong, sharp taste. You then tell him that in your country, people use salt in all their cookery. He's British. That's great. Might he not reply, in that case, I suppose all your dishes taste exactly the same, because the taste of that stuff you have just given me is so strong that it will kill the taste of everything else. But you and I know that the real effect of salt is exactly the opposite. So far from killing the taste of the egg and the tripe and the cabbage, it actually brings it out. They do not show their real taste till you have added the salt. Okay, this is like just a brilliant understanding of how salt and light work. They're two tools that are used to have an effect on something else. And when they have, and the, the kind of effect that they have is not one of homogenizing everything and making everything the same, The truth is is that the inherent organic flavors and shape and texture and color that's already there is exposed and highlighted because of these things. So so note, then, how powerful the image that Jesus calls us salt and light. Um, I think there's just a a um, horrible—I think we're in such a—let me say this. We're in such a cool new season as— Christians in the Pacific Northwest, where art and culture is really celebrated in our city, what an amazing opportunity we have to be salt and light to people that maybe don't know Jesus, and instead of going in and saying, you have to look exactly like this to be a Christian, or you have to be a missionary in Africa, or a pastor, or, like, that's it. This is, like, these, like, really um, intense categories that not everyone fits into so well. We instead go in as salt and light and ask the Holy Spirit, what is the shape and color and texture and flavor that's already here? What is, what's being done already that God has already been at work doing? And then how do we be salt and light in that moment to light up that inherent beauty that God is already at work doing? So um, for the remainder of the time, I want to tell you guys a story. Um, this is just a, a personal experience I've had of two, two people that I've met that, to me, just embody salt and light um, in a way that is, um, it's kind of unlike anything I've ever seen, and it's incredibly inspiring. So let me introduce you to um, Kim and Troy Meter. Does anyone know the Meters? They live in Bend, Oregon. Okay, great, that makes it better, because this is an incredible story. So um, I had the opportunity to volunteer at the ranch that they own to do service projects a couple years ago. It was in the middle of the summer. And when we got there, it was a bunch of college students. When we got there, Kim rounded us all up to tell her story real quick and then to tell us what we're going to be doing that day. Um, and when she got us all around, Kim just um, unapologetically launched into uh, her testimony. And Kim, um, when she brought us all in, she told us really quickly that when she was eight, eight years old, mm-hmm. She came home, seven or eight, I can't remember. She came home from school to find that her um, father had m- murdered her mother and then had committed suicide. That's, wh- that's the s- what she came home to. As an eight-year-old girl, um, that was so shocking. I don't know, I, I've, I've personally never experienced anything even mildly close to that, so I can't imagine the trauma that instantly starts to take place. But it was so significant to her that the only response she had was to physically leave the house. She ran out of the house and just took off running, like, into the desert, into the wilderness. (laughs) And she claims, um, and she's kind of vague in the way she talks about it, and I think that's um, intentional, but when she gets into the wilderness, she claims to have an experience with God um, that just kind of alters her, changes her. As an eight-year-old girl, he somehow finds her. Um, so later when the family asked if she wanted to go to the funeral, she said, like, please, please don't make me go to the funeral. I can't bear to go to this funeral. And so they said, yeah, don't worry about it. Go to the corral and go ride horses. And so she went down and she started riding horses, and Kim would claim that thr- <laughs> this is crazy, her words, not mine. Through these horses, Kim came to know the God of the universe through, through horses. This is her story. So um, she marries uh, Tr- Troy, who's a country boy, clearly. And um, the two of them um, proceed to walk with Jesus together. Uh, that's like, uh, you know, I'm really shortening the story of their life. But I want to get to the main thing, which is, um, eventually they come to found um, what will be the largest horse rescue in the state of, in Oregon State history. This is Crystal Peaks Youth Ranch. This is where I went. So Kim um, and Troy have a heart for uh, horses. <laughs> and so they uh, they know the Lord. They're asking him what to do. And he takes them to this like nine acre um, old cinder mine piece of land that like nothing is growing on it, but it's the only thing they can afford. So they buy it and then slowly start to, over the course of two years, rehabilitate this land so that it can just simply grow like plant life. He starts to bring in old moldy hay and um, taking like really damaged trees that are free that he can find and they start to slowly breathe life into this place um, and then in 1995 they brought their first horse in it was um it was so so mutilated that it had to it have its like face sewn back together by the vet um this is from neglect and abuse by the way of the owners which like i don't can't even imagine but there you go that's what they're experiencing um, so this just keeps happening. What happens is they bring in a horse, they start to nurse it back to health, and Kim's technique, man, I saw it in action, is unlike anything I've ever seen. It's like, it's like she's like taming the horse with the Holy Spirit, and it's like you've never seen anything like it. I, couldn't, I can't believe it. So she starts bringing in horse after horse, and her and Troy start to just start, um, start to see these horses nurse back to health. And naturally, it, gains, it attracts the community, and kids start to come to see these horses, and Kim and Troy start to see this relationship forming between these kids and the horses, and it starts to birth this, like, mo- this movement to create a, a youth camp. Um, so that's what they do. These horses start coming, and they start to bring in um, abused and neglected um, kids as well to work with these horses that have gone through steps of recovery. It's like unbelievable. So there's a story of one o- this little girl I am pr- I'm pretty sure this is the picture of the girl that the story's about. Um, I tried to search, and I'm, this is, um, she had like white hair. She was really, on, like, it, it has to be her. She's like on one of their websites. So um, I apologize if it's not, but the story's a real story. This girl was, came from such a dark um, background that as, uh, I think she was six, or five or six, she was a mute. She no longer spoke. It had been years since she had spoken or uttered a single um, noise. Which, like, if you've ever been around a little girl, like, how devastating to not hear her. You know how, like, boisterous they can be? Just so, like, wonderfully joyful. Imagine that little girl just, like, not being able to talk because of what she experienced. So she came to this camp and built a relationship with Kim and Troy, but at a distance. But um, Kim and Troy offered her quality time with these horses. And one of these horses was um, like a, he was a like spunky outgoing horse that had overcome a lot of adversity. And one day Kim was watching this little girl sitting on the post of the corral with this horse. And um, he like did a kick and she giggled, like a giggle like came out of her mouth. And Kim was like beside herself. She was watching from the kitchen and just like, let it happen. Like, don't move let's see if it happens again. And sure enough, like the horse does like a silly kick and she starts to giggle again. Um, And lo and behold, through this horse, this girl would come to regain the confidence of what it means to trust and have a relationship, first with an animal, and then slowly she would start to reach out to Kim and Troy um, and grow up to understand that God was speaking to her through these these horses. (laughs) It's just like, what the, so incredible. Um, She tells another story of, I don't have a picture of, uh, uh, they brought in a horse that was three years old. It should have weighed 1,200 pounds. It weighed 400. It was a third of its body weight. And it had been so abused by its owners prior to Kim and Troy's rescue that it could no longer support the front half of its body with its legs um, because they were so weak. So its whole chest and neck and face were like scarred and bloody and like open sores and wounds because it couldn't hold itself up. I mean, I'm sorry to paint such a graphic picture, but like there is evil in this world, in case you don't know. And um, it manifests itself in people and in the environment and in animals. Kim and Troy found this horse, brought it back, and Kim said I've, she's never experienced uh, a rehabilitation process quite like this horse. It was absolutely devastated when she got it. So they spent, like, two quality months just really, really being soft and gentle with this horse to get it to the point where it could walk and they could, like, start to heal the wounds on its, on its face. But it was still, as you can imagine, so um, uh, shell-shocked, you know? It, would not, it didn't want to be around people except for Kim. So, a group of juvenile hall boys came in one day, about two months later, and um, the, Kim lined them all up, and there was a big boy, six foot two, 200 pounds kid, he, he was at the end of the line, and he was a, a child of drug and alcohol problems, and his left arm was like shriveled and kind of like a really shriveled mutilated arm that he held close to him and he was really ashamed of it because of just stuff that happened in the womb. And um, he, but he was this big kid and he had a really like stern mask, as you can imagine, juvenile hall boy. So Kim brought them out and she said, hey, I'm going to show you guys a horse that we've been working with. And I just, like, I just ask that you guys hold still and you stay really calm because I don't want you freaking this horse out. Um, And she said she brought the horse out, and she, like, heard in unison all of these boys, like, gasp audibly. We were, like, scared at the sight of this animal. Um, And they watched, Kim said she watched as the horse, like, slowly, like, slowly came and approached this line of boys. And then it went down the line. And it would reach its nose out, and it would touch its nose and kind of get close to the boys. And then it would pull back, and it would think. And then it would, she would slowly walk it to the next horse, or the next kid. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But down the line, this horse went, and it would reach its nose out, sniff, come back. And she said, I, she, she didn't, this horse didn't do anything else. That's all she wanted to do with it. But it got all the way down the line, and it got to the last kid, that six foot two kid the, with the crippled arm. And Kim said, it reached its head out, and it put its forehead right on his chest, and it held it there and it wouldn't move. And Kim's like, I'm, I know that God's doing something right there in this moment. Because Kim, like, again, unapologetically directs everything that's happening with these horses to the Holy Spirit and what God's doing through these horses. So they are hearing the gospel about six times within the hour, you know. Um, This kid would go on to, um, like, fully admit that he experienced the love of God through this horse. He's now friends with the meters. He got a out of Juneau Hall, I mean, his story is like a redemption story without a doubt. Um, and uh, through, through a horse was the first time he experienced unconditional love. Um, so why am I telling you stories of ho- Jesus working through horses? Um, because here's, here's, what I, here's the beauty I see in this. What I see is um, Kim and Troy were born in a particular time and in a particular place where they happened to be made to love ranches and horses. It's like, it's not my cup of tea. Um, I went to this ranch. I loved every second I was there. These, These horses are unlike anything I've experienced. They're like puppies. One horse came and put its head right over my shoulder while Kim was talking, and then, I kid you not, left its head on my chest and wagged its tail. It was like, what is this? This is like the Garden of Eden kind of relationship with animals. I couldn't believe it. And so here's, here's, here's what I want to just leave you guys with today. I thank God that when he looked on Kim and Troy, he, at a young age, he saw the seedbed and the potential for what would be like beautiful, beautiful work in the future. And when when Jesus himself was the light and the salt in Kim and Troy's life, it didn't mean that he took them and then warped them into something that he didn't already create from the very beginning, you know? He just just asked for them to take his hand, and then he redeemed every little part of them and turned it into something they could never have dreamed of. And now they are a city on a hill in Bend, Oregon. Like, you wouldn't believe 5,000 kids every year go to this camp. Like from scary backgrounds, by the way, and through quality time with the horses, come away with the same story, which is, "Oh my gosh, God loves me." <laughs> like, what that? That is a niche ministry, right? <laughs> that is not everyone's ministry, but praise God, He's creative. Like, holy smokes, you guys. So I just there's a there's a, to me. Oh, sorry, I'm sorry, I've gone over, but I'll wrap it up right now. Um, I just think. When Jesus calls you the salt and the light, he, d- he does so after um, having exposed himself as the salt and light. And so what happens is we come to Jesus and we let him shine light on us and show us what's inside of us. And then we say, God, here's, like the, here's, here's what I've got. What do you want to do? How do you want to use it? And for some of you, you're just starting that journey. For some of you, you're in the middle. For some of you, you're, like, well on your way. But every day, there's such an invitation for God to, for, to let God be creative with you and dream up new ways in which you can be salt and light to others. And so I, I just want to be a part of a new movement of believers where, like, Christians, when people think of Christians, they can't actually place them into a stereotypical box of what, it's, what it looks like because the Christians they know are the most wildly creative, incredibly robust people that they know. Just like, like loving, loving unconditionally, but so creative in the ways that they go about it. We need more Troy and Kim meters in the world, and I don't mean we need more horse ranches. I just mean we need more people that have fully given themselves up to be used by God and to be salt and light now. It's exciting. So uh, I don't, does the band want to come up? I can p- pray and close. Sorry, I'm really bad at ending things. I just kind of like end it. So I apologize. Uh, Crystal Peaks Youth Ranch is, the, um, is their ranch. If you just Google that, it'll take you to their website. You can sign up for their newsletter and get stories. I have their newsletter. It's great. Um, so I'm just going to pray, worship. You guys do your thing and bless you.